It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Since August 1st, Lyft, vaunted rideshare giant, and Uber rival has been sued for sexual assault by at least, and this is staggering, 26 passengers. According to the lawsuit, the company refuses to go after predatory drivers because that would hurt its bottom line. And one driver was allowed to continue driving after a truly horrifying incident. Then there's Uber, which has been posting major, major losses. Let's get to Uber because those shares are taking a hit today after the company announced less than stellar earnings. Uh, The company reported its largest ever loss, exceeding $5 billion, along with its lowest ever revenue growth. The question is, are rideshares unsafe and unfit for our current demands? We've got our new motherboard reporter on the beat, Lauren Gurley, to tell us all about it on today's episode. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Lauren, welcome to Cyber. First time on. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about how Lyft has had a very bad few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and why is that? What's so they've had 26 lawsuits against them. Right. So, well, 26 women have individually sued Lyft for varying degrees but sexual assault, sexual harassment, various forms of sexual abuse, mostly from, actually entirely from drivers on the platform. And so, you know, Lyft has often touted this reputation as like a more socially responsible, woke counterpart to Uber. In fact, they sort of gained a big market share during the period right after um, Uber's initial CEO was fired over sexual misconduct allegations or had resigned, excuse me. And that's the thing. I remember when Lyft came on the scene, it was sort of like that, don't use Uber, use Lyft because it's that's the one that actually treats their drivers better. It's a better, better service, et cetera. Is this sort of unprecedented that we're seeing these lawsuits? Um, no, I mean, they, they've... There have been cases of rape and sexual assault on the platform, like since the early days on both platforms. I think there is a ton coming out right now just because when women or people generally who've been assaulted hear like one story, it 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 sort of causes a lot more people to want to come forward. So there's been a lot of media reporting on it. And there's a law firm in San Francisco run by three women who have sort of taken the lead nationally in litigating these cases. And they've have like had hundreds of people call in either opening cases or inquiring about how to file a lawsuit. One thing I always think of when when I see these stories in particular, especially about ride shares and these sorts of assaults happening and these massive lawsuits is why haven't we seen this as much with cab companies? And what's the difference between a cab company and a rideshare? And why is this happening more with a rideshare? Right. So I think it does happen with both, but there are a lot more protections and regulations in place for cabs. For example, like in New York City, you have these glass paint like windows. I don't know if they're bulletproof, but they're very thick <laughs> in between the rider and the the driver, uh, a lot of all New York City cabbies have the option to install surveillance cameras in their cars. All of all of the people driving yellow cabs in New York also like have to be registered with the TLC, which is the commission that regulates that stuff. 
Uber and Lyft also have to follow some of these laws, but they circumvent a lot of them. So a lot of lawsuits, in fact, a lawsuit that just came out is alleging that Lyft doesn't check if its drivers are registered. And so a lot of, at least in one case, a driver who brutally beat a passenger and caused like pretty bad brain damage in Brooklyn a year or two ago was not registered to be able to drive in the city, but he had he drove like 840 times without a license and Lyft didn't enforce the law. Why, why are they not very good at regulating this? You'd think that even for a rideshare, you apply, you get in, there's a vetting process, then, you know, it would avoid things like people riding around without a license and driving your passengers. Right. I think there's just a very strong incentive for Lyft and Uber because of their business models to sort of circumvent basic laws that are created to protect passengers and drivers on the labor side and on the consumer side. And so because they are a platform, they have sort of seen themselves as outside of the law um, on a number of different issues. But I think specifically on this one, there's no one really enforcing it. It is supposed to be the city, but the city also, and at least in New York City, has like very limited resources to enforce it. And Lyft is just not doing it either. Is it just cheaper for them not to? Yeah. I mean, I think it's much less work. They want to put as many drivers on the road as they can so that they can lower labor costs. They want to like sort of flood the market. Now there are caps in New York City on the amount of drivers you can have on the road, um, which is one after like a lot of organizing by um, rideshare drivers. But yeah, I mean, if you can add, if you can just be, you know, adding hundreds of drivers onto the road all the time, like that totally affects prices and you can lower them. It affects the, the surge pricing and affects, I mean, they've recently cut a lot of the, the wages in cities throughout the U.S. Like in L.A. last year, they or this year, they dropped the per mile pay for drivers from 80 cents to 60 cents a mile. That's and a huge drop. It's, a hu- it's like a 20%, 20% pay cut. I don't know. Um, yeah. So journalists, not mathematicians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess what these types of stories are showing is that potentially these ride shares, it almost seems like they're circumventing the law. Well, they are. And are they really destined to stick around or are they going to be sort of consumed into regular cab, cab companies and regulations? Because although it's cheaper, I mean, you're seeing a lot of these problems kind of come up. Right. And so I think a huge thing that also just happened with for ride shares over the past month is the passage of AB5 in California, which is a bill that will in all likelihood reclassify Uber and Lyft drivers as employees, which makes them eligible for all these benefits that they currently don't have because Lyft and Uber don't want to pay them. And so once they have to pay for all these things, I mean, I already wonder, they're already operating at a loss both companies have not been profitable and they both IPO'd earlier this spring or in the spring and have continued to see prices or the stock prices drop. And so it's definitely a big question of whether they'll survive. I think both of them sort of imagine that we would switch over to driverless cars a lot quicker than it seems to be possible. Like I don't, I'm not an expert on this, but I don't think it's going to be happening in the next few years. And I think they sort of had in mind that this could be a, a way to, you know, shift over to a different labor model. But 
as it is right now, I don't see them, and I don't think most analysts see them being profitable anytime in the next few years. In these 26 lawsuits, I mean, are there more coming? There are more coming, yeah. Um, there are a number, like I said, there are a number of firms that are just have open calls for these cases and saying they're getting tons of calls. Attorneys say the legal action may be joined by as many as a 1,000 potential victims across the country. In a statement, Lyft responded, what the victims describe is terrifying and has no place in the Lyft community. So I'm assuming that there will be many more coming. One of the most high-profile cases came out last week um, involving a woman named Allison Turcos who was uh, gang raped by three men, one of whom was her Lyft driver back a year ago. She was taken from, <clears throat> she ordered a, a, a Lyft from um, her a bar in, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn to her apartment a few neighborhoods away. And she checked the app in the morning to see that she had been taken 79 for 79 minutes from Brooklyn through lower Manhattan into New Jersey and back to her apartment, and she just didn't remember what happened. Um, but turns out later they did a rape kit. She had, she had been charged like $100. She's like, this is supposed to be a $10 ride at 2 a.m. Why am I being charged $100? Um, she was in a lot of pain and quickly realized that something was really wrong. Uh, turns out she had been raped by um, a number of men, and Lyft's response was essentially to sort of ignore her. I mean, she didn't really figure out what happened, but she said, hey, why why was I driving around for 80 minutes last night and someone took me into New Jersey? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, that that was just, like, a problem with, like, the connective, like, the, I don't know, you, your app might be outdated or the driver probably forgot to turn it off. And they just, just stopped responding to her. She said, okay, I'm going to file a police report, and they just never responded. So I think another thing that has come up a lot is Lyft's customer service response like is generally to just write this sort of like or there's like a pre-written script that they have they'll send an email they'll be it'll be attached to a person's name but if someone is like badly assaulted they're just not responding they're not there's been complaints that they don't cooperate with law enforcement in terms of sharing the information of drivers and their license numbers. So That's a horrific story. It is a horrific story, yeah. Was What was the resolution to it in terms of were, were any of these people charged or? Yeah, so there uh, is an open case with the FBI now for sex trafficking that this woman was involved in and she sued Lyft last week um, for their negligence in terms of dealing with the, the the driver and allowing him to drive after this had happened. He was allowed to continue driving. Right. How do these companies make these really boneheaded decisions is what I don't understand. Yeah, so it's not like they knew what happened. It's that they don't care. Like when someone reaches out and says, hey, I think this awful thing happened, they don't investigate it. So they didn't know that she was gang raped or they didn't know that she was raped at all. They just chose to ignore it. And so I think a lot of what happened, at least in the instances I've looked into, a lot of what happens, they don't actually know what happened or never knew. And later, like when I asked them for a comment, they're like, oh, we had no idea that happened. Like, how could we know whatever like that? Like that, that's not our responsibility, but it's like you didn't even conduct an investigation. So... Well, it almost seems like you have a rideshare company, an app that's making tons of money by finding in the market, and they're looking to 
cost cut. And some of the things they do is maybe not put money into investigative investigative units within their own their own app. I mean, this is the thing is that are these companies just shooting themselves in the foot by not investing in some of these things that they're almost asking for these problems to occur? Yeah, I mean, I would I would definitely say so. I think on the labor side too, they don't really have an HR department. So when a driver is assaulted or some gets into an accident or has something terrible happen to them, they're also dealing with these robotic responses and like days go by without getting any responses. And so a lot of people give up and just go to the police. But I think, yeah, I mean, now there's like this snowball effect of all these lawsuits coming at them. So I think they, I don't know. I I can't, I obviously can't say what will happen to either company. What I will say is that Lyft has rolled out 14 new safety features since the start of this year. And it seems every time like there's like a wave or some sort of news about assault, they come, they announce another safety feature. How many safety features can you have for an app? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, also, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, hey, like all these new safety features, but then it'll turn out that they're just like announcing them and they're not actually available yet, which is what happened in the spring. They said that they were um, rolling out a app feature where you can call 911 with a panic button on the app while you're uh, in the car without leaving the app. And then sort of unclear like whether that has fully been rolled out, um, but it definitely wasn't um, even on available on the app until like a month ago. So I, I, I'm, I'm just sort of like, when is one of these two companies going to be in the dustbin? <laughs> yeah. Not that I don't use Uber, I definitely do, but... I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of, I'm functioning under the, under the assumption that this is only going to last so long and that it's going to go to standard cab companies that are providing the same type of service. Right. The other thing I would say is that since both of them are operating at a loss, basically they get all their money. I mean, I think there's a statistic done where like maybe a couple of years ago where for Uber passengers, you're basically paying for 60% of the ride, the other 40% being paid for for Uber, which means that the way they're functioning now is through like huge, like lots of money being poured in from investors. Once that money goes away, like for example, if there's a recession or which, which there will be. The, yeah, which ever all signs <laughs> point to recession. If it's a bad recession, like people aren't going to be throwing billions of dollars into Lyft and Uber anymore. And so the money that they're operating on will go away. And so either they'll have to raise their prices or they they just definitely won't be able to function the same way. Same thing once, you know, once drivers in California have unionize or now that they have like the right to overtime pay and various like workmen's comp that's going to cost both companies a lot of money so their their labor and business models overall are going to need to change well on that note thank you and welcome to motherboard as well you've only been here for what a month yeah (laughs) well you're already breaking stories thank you thanks Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for having me on. Jason. Ben, do you know how to beatbox? I don't. I don't. You know how to, you know how no, to beatbox? No, I don't, but okay. we, need like a, we need some sort of uh, roundup intro music. I know, we do. We also need to name this something better. Uh, Cyber Second. Cyber, oh God, that's just awful. Uh, okay, well, let's get to it. What about news you can peruse? News you can peruse? Yeah. All right, thanks, Dad. Okay. Holy shit, that's bad. Okay. <laughs> So, Trump has a super classified server? What, like, what, what is this? Yeah, so I got to do some reporting. I'm super excited about this. Uh, we are recording this the day after the whistleblower complaint uh, was published by the House Intelligence Committee. If this is coming out a week later, so we're talking to you from the past. Uh, I hope we still have a republic in a few days when you're listening to this. Uh, And God knows where the story is now. But in this whistleblower complaint, there was a line in which the whistleblower said uh, basically that this call with the Ukrainian president had been moved from sort of like a classified server to something that's called a code word classified server in the White House. So uh, I and Joseph Cox called up some uh, former members of the National Security Council to figure out like what this server is and what they're even talking about. And it's quite interesting. Well, what is it? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of this. Yeah, I know. So basically, (laughs) if you work in the White House and uh, you have to create records for basically anything the president does as part of the Presidential Records Act, uh, which is good. That's why you get like presidential libraries that have, you know, all these files in them. Uh, And... Like, a phone call can be classified in one of four ways. So, like, someone who works on the National Security Council has a computer that has email and the internet on it, like, sort of just, like, the clear net. And then they have something for uh, secret documents, which is, like, a regular classification. And then there's top secret, which is this system. They're all on different computers. This system that's top secret is connected to, like, the NSA, the Pentagon, et cetera, et cetera. The secret one is connected, like, worldwide. It's connected to, like, the State Department overseas and all that sort of thing. And then there's this fourth one called the code word classified system. Or actually, we don't know what it's called, but that's how it's described. And everyone who I talked to, I talked to four former NSC officials, and they all knew what I was talking about and all had used it, but none of them referred to its name. And part of this system Phoenix. is being like, yeah, part of it's classified. Uh, I talked to one guy and he's like, I actually don't remember uh, what parts of this are classified and which are not um, because this person had worked in one of the last two administrations. And it's like, hmm. I don't know. Anyways, just Fancy. interesting tidbit. Very interesting. So this code word classified system is available basically to classify uh, information that's like, the top American secrets. So, uh, I don't know, maybe like the names of spies or information regarding specific like counterterrorism, right. uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
It's basically available only on a single computer system that's not connected to the internet, only in the White House. And the, and Trump essentially put this phone call. Yeah, so White House lawyers, according to the whistleblower complaint, directed uh, the people who, uh, who classify things, so it's members of the national, uh, the NSC, uh, to take it from a standard classification, either secret or top secret, and move it to the code word classified system, which is highly unusual. I talked to four different people, and they all said that they weren't aware of a single call during their times uh, under the Bush White House administration and the Obama administration where any call with any foreigner had been moved to this system ever. Hmm. And that's because these are like American secrets. Like these aren't things that you'd be discussing. There's with nothing the, you would you would share with an ally. You would certainly not share it with the president of Ukraine. They they were all in agreement on that. They said maybe you would share it with an ally uh, if you were talking about a specific military exercise that was happening imminently. Uh, but generally, like the type of these secrets, these are like in person conversations between heads of state. Like, right. And of so, course, there's also burn after reading. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the interesting thing about this code level classification is that it's like even if you have a top secret clearance, you can't go and look at this. It's like on a need to know basis. It's compartmentalized. So one of the people I talked to worked uh, in counterterrorism, and he was like, "I was able to be read into specific projects on this." that involved counterterrorism, but I never did anything. Like, I didn't have access to, like, Russian intelligence type, uh, you know, things that were in this system. Hmm. And he said that it was so secretive that basically, like, the president doesn't have a login to it, which, I, I mean, it's, it's, like, so tightly held that there are so few people who can actually access this system that it's, like, the president doesn't have access to it, the uh, national security advisor doesn't have access to it, and that's not because they're not, like, qualified to do it. It's because, like, the controls on it are such that there are only, like, a handful of people who are trained in how to access this stuff. Well, and, uh, so the president course, can be like, hey, like, I want to move this or, like, tell me this, X, Y, Z, and someone will go get it from that system. But it's not like anyone can go and log in and look at it. I mean, of course, what this all says about this phone call was even the president and his people knew that it was it was nuclear. Yeah, so it suggests that it's nuclear and the fact that we've now seen a transcript of it and everyone who's seen the transcript is like, there is nothing in here remotely relating to uh, national security suggests that they knew it was nuclear and that they were trying to bury it. And so what, what these people were telling me was like, you can put this under, uh, you can compartmentalize it such that basically it's buried forever and no one would know it's there and no one could find it. Wild. This story just keeps getting crazier and crazier. It's really crazy. And yeah, we're recording just... this on Friday. So like, who knows what's going to happen in the next week. But uh, yeah, this was like, I was really excited doing this story because I was just talking to these people and I was like, this is like super fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Super it's also shit. secret. I love secrets. I know. Right? Yeah. yeah. Secretive. Yeah. Spy shit too, man. It's great. Uh, okay. This is a story. This is just, I mean, I hate math, uh, but I really enjoyed this story because it said that, you know, math is wrong, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, so uh, this is a, a very interesting story. I think I found it on 
uh, Hacker News somewhere, and I asked uh, a math reporter to look into it for us. Math reporter. Math Jeez. reporter. Yeah. So the math reporter came back a few weeks later with a highly interesting Boring. story. No, it's it's super interesting. So <laughs> there's this number theorist uh, at I believe Imperial College in United Kingdom, which I think is what I said where I said uh, Tom Ridd worked. So I don't know, maybe he's, he's like works in a college in the United Kingdom. Okay, just keep uh, this it at guy that. as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, and he has this theory that a lot of math is built uh, on sort of like false assumptions. And so, I don't know, like if you watched uh, Goodwill Hunting or whatever, you like know what a proof is. It's like a very difficult math problem that, you know, you have to prove is true. And so... You know, they can take up chalkboards and chalkboards, and apparently some of the most complicated proofs are like hundreds and thousands of pages long. And the way that math works is like when you're proving a new proof, you're like, according to these previous proofs which have been proven, I can now show that my new proof is real. And what this guy, Kevin Buzzard, uh, believes is that a lot of these longer proofs are just like too complicated for any human to check. And so we're basically building new proofs on old proofs that are not actually proven or known by any human to actually be true. It's just like there's these senior mathematicians that are like, hey, uh, I think I solved this well, proof. Well, where is Matt Damon? I know, we need Matt. Oh, um, so he has this uh, this software called Lean. And that's the other part of the story. It uses AI and machine learning to check proofs. So he thinks that we can use like AI to check the most complicated proofs and then we can prove that math is actually true. Very interesting. Thank you, Dad. How about Google and its contractors finally getting to unionize? That's, this is great. This is great. It is, it. yeah. It's it's real movement in the uh, tech industry's labor uh, organization movement. Uh, yeah, so there are uh, like Google and Facebook and all these other big tech companies use a lot of contractors and a lot of uh, like contracting firms. So they use like Accenture and uh, I'm blanking on all the other ones, but they do it for like content moderation and uh, like data maintenance and things of this nature. So there's a company called HCL that uh, at least has a big office in Pittsburgh and 80 Google contractors there voted to formally form a union with the National uh, Labor Relations Board last week. Hmm. And this is now, this is like the first big tech company that we know of that has voted to unionize. That's great. Yeah, it's huge. And, and like, so and wasn't there some sort of like weird disparaging thing that Google wrote about like steelworkers not understanding tech? Like, yeah, so HCL is the contractor and Google gives them tasks and they bid for contracts or something. I, I would imagine that's how it works. And then HCL is the actual employer. So these Google contractors, like they work only on Google projects, but their employer is HCL. And HCL sent like a half dozen emails being like, this is a really bad idea. You shouldn't do this. Uh, and the specifics here are that this is Pittsburgh. It's a steel town. And so these people are unionizing with the United Steelworkers Union, uh, which represents a bunch of steelworkers. They've spun like, a, they've formed a spin-off union that's focused on unionizing tech, the tech sector. And so uh, HCL was saying like, 
yeah, do you really trust a bunch of blue collar like steel workers to have to understand I your roll. job? Oh yeah, my it's, god, it's really bad. Uh, and then the other big thing is that Kickstarter has been trying to unionize. They haven't voted yet, so HCL, the HCL union, uh, happened before Kickstarter. But Kickstarter is like very much underway. Um, they're like they've announced an intention to like form a union. They just haven't done a formal vote. And when that happens, that'll be a big deal. Well, uh, that is an amazing development, and I hope more tech companies are able to, or some of their workers are able to unionize more than what we've seen because this industry is so abusive. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jason, for being on this roundup. All right, farewell. Farewell. This week's episode was recorded and edited by Andrew Bursick and produced and hosted by me, Ben Maku. You'll be hearing from me next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.